Hi team and a huge welcome to the Dedicate podcast. I'm your host, Kate Ivey. Today I'm honoured and excited to be chatting to Grace Brennan, the owner and founder of the well-known bush business, Buy From The Bush, which boasts 250,000 followers on Instagram. This is a super fun episode where we cover lots of topics and delve into discussions that we hadn't necessarily planned on covering. We talk about self-identity, moving to the country, rural expectations and much more. We also of course discuss buy from the bush and motherhood. I really enjoyed engrossing myself in this conversation and I'm sure you'll enjoy it too. How are you? I'm great, yeah, great to meet you. Thanks so much for your time. Where are you at the moment? I am in a little, little wee twizzle radio studio. Oh. Yeah, in our small town. Oh, cool. Yeah. What about you? In Warren, um, but in this office that I share with people and the cotton trucks are going past on the main street. It just always is a bit loud. So I just realised for recording sake, maybe it's better to be out in this. Oh, perfect. Thanks. Do you do like a shared office space with other businesses or? Yeah. That's nice to have that. It's so nice, but it's also like no frills. Like none of us, yeah. like often somebody will around and go, oh, my God, you could do so much with this. And we're like, we're, we're not going to. We're just going to come, <laughs> do our work and go home. Like it's an Love old, it. I don't know, stock and station agency or I think it was a house probably once upon a time. But anyway, it does the oh, job. It's very cool. Exactly. And it fits with the like rural, regional exactly. values and no frills sort of approach. Exactly. And it's quite cool. Like I've worked from this space over the last, I don't know, for ages so for various jobs I've been in this space and so there's a group of women who have been in here with me and they're just absorbing their work lives is quite cool yeah, so that's all, really nice a couple who work in the cotton industry one in the meat and livestock industry so it's just yeah it's quite a cool yeah. little hub I think I would quite like that actually to have something yeah. like that because it does get lonely at home it's so well funnily enough so at the moment I'm the only one using the office on a regular basis and I I realized how much I needed that company, even though you're not working together, mm. but you're working alongside each other because it's so dull. Mm. You might just go and grab lunch. And then what's quite nice um, is your brain can get out of the clutter of home. Exactly. And Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think there's something in that. Yeah. I find sometimes I go and just go to the local cafe and do some work. And just when I say sometimes, I'd love to do it often, but it's probably like three <laughs> times a year. <laughs> you can just like think so much more globally and creatively. Yes. Creatively, it's yeah. just yeah. I think you can be in a completely flat headspace at home and and just shift your like physical space and suddenly be energized to do all sorts of things that you yeah. Wouldn't have. In fact, just before I got on, I got a message from one of my colleagues saying when you finish with the um, podcast recording can we chat about xyz i said yeah can we do it over coffee at the local coffee shop because perfect I think also when you're brainstorming there's something about yes. being like, yeah open. yeah anyway so it's kind of like this free feeling to just let any idea flow rather than yeah, yeah when when i'm at home it's like you're in the business yeah when you're out you can actually work on the business Yes, yeah. I think so too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Well, that could be my my take home from today. We've got at least <laughs> one so far. <laughs> okay, so I normally have a like quick touch base with the people I'm interviewing to ask them about different challenges they've had throughout their lives, but I know you're busy, so I thought I'll just ask you on the spot. Okay. Um, we'll obviously chat about buy from the bush and moving to the country, but I wondered if there are any other 
things that have happened in your life that have been quite significant that you'd be happy to share with us? I've had the most charmed life. (laughs) It's totally fine if there isn't. Yeah, I think, I don't, I, I, I don't think there is anything relevant. I mean, I think the, like one of the biggest things is ongoing in the sense that when you move, when you leave your home and move to another place for love, um, you know, finding meaning in that life is probably an ongoing challenge. Yeah. And from, I mean, whether it's relevant, particularly relevant to your audience or maybe not, but like one of the things is I played lots of sport in Sydney and it was a really big part of my life. And then you just mm-hmm. have to kind of quit that and you move and and almost like immediately you, you meant to start, in my in case anyway, I was kind of meant to start my adult life and I just didn't really yeah. um know what that meant so yeah I don't have any other like major I haven't had any major tragedy or anything um we can go in into that it's sort of like your um it's your self-identity that was a massive Mm -hmm. thing for me as well was playing high level sport and it not being available here I play local sport and it nearly hits the spot yes Um, exactly what was your sport um netball and basketball the main two awesome what position um goal attack goal shooter but I, to be honest, I was probably um, going downhill even before I moved out here, but <laughs> it felt like it was still, uh, yeah, like I would never have said it out loud at the time because it didn't feel significant. But now when I reflect on it, I think you give up. That is a big thing to give up when you, mm. when sport has been such a big part of your life. Yeah. Um, through your 20s sort of thing. Anyway, yes. No, no, I, I, I like this topic. I think many people will have been in this situation. And um, mm. for me, I found my husband didn't understand, I don't think, how much sport meant to me. Yes, I bet. Did, what about you? No, he didn't. He didn't. But I probably also didn't really frame it that way, even to myself. Mm-hmm. I don't, I was never... It, I was playing a lot of it, um, but the people around we, me were probably more serious about their sport and they've gone on to kind of perform at a high level. So maybe that's on me. But, yes, I, I mean, that was a common theme through, and I bet you can relate to this, many of our friends as I was playing netball, the idea of trying to get the partner to a game and then take it mm. seriously. They were at the game and and then... It, but it's it's a funny thing that's happened in our lives because now I've got daughters mm. and we watch the Super Netball and Jack, my husband, is really committed to watching it with us. Yeah. He's quite invested and it gives me the greatest joy. In, in some ways, the kind of acknowledgement that he never gave me when I was playing mm-hmm. through our daughters because he kind of sees the value of respecting the sport on their behalf. Yes, so do you think that's what it was? Because I, I remember looking over and seeing my husband reading the newspaper. And I was like, I looked over to see if he'd seen this really good thing I've done. This was before he was my husband when we were dating. Oh, yeah. He's having coffee and reading the newspaper. So oh, no. do you think they Never. don't they they did not Yeah, they don't care about netball, eh? Most of them. They it's did like, not. They didn't. I don't think. Well, one thing that I think happens, especially with netball, is that people, their first introduction to it is club netball, you know, under 10s club netball. And that is a very different game to elite yeah so I think the their appetite for it is so lacking and in fact you know once they come to a few games and they see the level and they see the kind of the speed and the agility and the the nature of elite netball I think maybe it you know slowly chips away at them but yes very little respect for 
for the athletes being athletes too. Mm. I talk about that um, quite often with my dad. Like he thinks I'm rewriting history, but he, you know, I come from a family of four girls and a boy yeah. and um, rugby was just always kind of more important than yeah. the netball. Yeah, and and I think my, like I played cricket and I wanted to play rugby and dad kind of stepped in and said, you're not playing rugby. Yeah. Um, and I suspect it was, I don't know, sub, sub subconscious kind of craving for being recognised for in in the sporting context. Yes, that like validation. Possibly, yeah. yeah. Possibly. Yeah. I've been delving into that stuff with a mindset coach. Have you? And it's nuts how many things you look at and you're like, oh, my God, it's all linked to validation. Like so um, many things. I can so have, imagine. Yeah, have you explored any of that stuff? No, um, no. And like, if I'm honest, the the I don't suffer self doubt in lots of areas of my life, but in a business context, definitely. And I definitely relate to the idea of um, imposter syndrome and mm -hmm. never really feeling legitimate in a work context. And I, I mean, I'm curious about that because it doesn't, although I remember in netball, because I was a shooter, um, as a young person, I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't that reliable um, in, big, in big moments I'd often miss. And I remember playing with a much older person, like, you know, she might have been, I don't know, 12 or 13 years older than me at the time. And she was going to a sports psychologist about sh shooting and she was trying hypnosis to kind of um, ensure her accuracy in big moments. And I remember as a young person thinking, oh, my God, you poor thing. Like, this yeah. is mad. Like, why do you need to do that? But as I got older and continued to play and then also moved into kind of different areas of my life, I realised with age there's something about failure that is so much more damaging that, mm. that when you you know it it stopped being I think in youth you can kind of get over it or there's or you somehow balance out the failure with success in other areas but as I grew up and I you know it d definitely got harder to be that person who was losing a game for the team and also you know extrapolating into into other areas of life I think now I understand the need for seeking answers and, and understanding why you fail in that moment yeah. um, to, try and, to try and better yourself. Yeah, that's super fascinating. I completely agree. I've always thought about that, how um, as we get older, we want to, yeah, things affect us so much more. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. And even the need, what motivates us to exercise comes from that too, I'm sure. Mm. Like I, I went away with a couple of, girlfriends who I played netball with I hadn't seen them for years but we well, not years months but we went away and caught up properly for the first time in ages the other day and one of my friends played continued playing long after I stopped and and is what I would call a, a proper athlete um and a trainer and everything anyway she brought all her training gear and she was she was adamant that she was going to train us while we were away and I I was kind of thinking why why are we training we're, we're catching up like this is not but then I also, I agreed and afterwards felt a thousand times better. And I think among the three of us, 
we had three different approaches to exercise. Like I do it when I can fit it in. Um, my friend who brought the training gear must do it in order to feel good yeah. about the day. And the the other friend is probably somewhere in between that. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it struck me once upon a time, we were all on the same page. We mm-hmm. did it because we were probably very driven for that particular sport and we wanted to achieve in our sport and, um, and have fun. And then our relationship with fitness and, and physicality has probably evolved since then in really different ways, which mm. I found interesting when we came back together because, you know, <laughs> I don't know, I, I, I think I was thrust back into that 21-year-old headspace of like, oh, my God, I really can't, you know, she'd ask us to do something and I couldn't actually do it. And I was like, oh, what, what has my life become? But hold on a minute. So it's a girl's trip. Yeah, you're going out drinking or anything like that, or you just... yeah lunches and drinking. Yeah, yeah, and then there's a bit of netball training in between, like with a ball or <laughs> not, just running. No ball, no, but gear. She brought yeah. gear. So um, she's now a, a fitness trainer herself. So she she wanted to do a circuit session with us, yeah. and I think it was a gift to us. Like I think she knew that we'd feel good afterwards. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but also to her, it's a it's a balance sheet. I think she mm. can indulge. Um, and have fun, but she has to make sure she's balancing that out with physical mm. fitness. Um, and that's how she gets the equilibrium. That's how she gets yeah. her happiness and her energy source, I suppose. And I can relate. I'm just not the same. Mm. Yeah. I don't want the balance sheet. Yeah. So do you have anything that you use to be, you know, balance things out when times are tough? Well, that's a good question because I – I do, if I had more time, or no, that's probably not the right thing. I think I would like to carve out more time for exercise. So that is something that I do value and is a huge contributor to to kind of feeling good and energetic. But I also really value relationships. So sometimes I will prioritise an evening with, my husband's a farmer and if I can get him at home, I don't want to then leave the house to exercise. So I definitely prioritise an evening meal or a glass of wine or something with him or even, you know, a conversation while feeding the kids or something. Mm. Um, And I've noticed that that is something that I probably prioritise more. And I also like, um, I think I also prioritise and maybe is it, I mean, I'm even questioning why I'm pitting one against the other, but in my mind, I can either be informed about the world or I can do the exercise. So there's like this part of my day that those two things are a choice I make. So I either spend time listening to a podcast or reading something or um, or kind of engaging in something challenging at work, or I switch off and I go and make myself healthy and, and I exercise. So there's mm-hmm. I don't know why those, I think it's because the rest of the day is servicing other people's needs. It's kind of working with my team at Bike in the Bush or looking after my kids but and my partner. So those two things are the two things I do for myself. Yeah. And have you thought, do you ever combine them, like go for a walk or a run, listening to a podcast, or it's just like one or the other? No, I do do that. Yeah. 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 And you said about self-doubt when it comes to business. Why do you think it's especially business? Yeah, that's a um, – I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. I think it's um, 
up until now, Buy From The Bush is a little bit different. So the last chapter of my work life is a little bit different because I'm able to be fully myself with no pretense of particular expertise. Like I think it came about, for people who have never heard of us, it came about because I was living in a rural community facing drought and I wanted to start a Instagram page that that showcased the beautiful business in businesses in communities facing drought. So in that in the simplicity of that idea, I didn't have to be anything other than a woman who lived on a farm and observed her community suffering. And I could be a mother and a wife and a community member and somebody kind of feeling their way through crisis. So that is quite empowering. And um, maybe this, you know, I could, there's agility in that. So I, I, I wasn't hampered by self-doubt necessarily. However, when you transition into kind of from a from this hopeful movement into a purpose-driven business, I have I realized that once the pace of the because it was so successful so early on, mm. crazy pace, once that pace slows and you actually have to set your own pace at work and um and generate opportunity and generate revenue and and sell um that sales thing. That's, I suppose, when I started to notice that I had some um, feelings of like, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah. And how am I going to do this? In the past, I think it's been a, a lack of expertise and feeling like I needed to be across absolutely everything in order mm-hmm. to achieve legitimacy or, or mm-hmm. um perceived as someone of value you know I I think what I've learned about myself is that I'm really acutely aware of what I don't know um and sometimes I'm surprised at the value I can add you know around the table um others who I'm who really impress and inspire me worry less about what they don't know and feel confidence in the things that they know and that they can contribute Mm -hmm. so um, I think that's where the self-doubt comes from, that needing, and even with Buy From The Bush, if I've been asked to be on a panel or do some piece of media from a business perspective or a small business perspective, I like to clarify that I I, I don't want to be framed as an expert. I'd prefer to just be a case study or, you know, tell a story or offer insight but certainly not offer a recipe for success. That's kind of something that I really don't love. So is that so if a media agency comes to you, do you say to them, hey, just make sure you know I'm not an expert? Or do you, when you're actually speaking, you say, hey, this is I'm not an expert? You know, what how do you um I do both. So I I once I've received the brief, if I'm confident in that brief, I wouldn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Um if I think that they're looking for something that I can't offer, then I'm really upfront about what I can offer mm-hmm. and you know some to give to illustrate that social media is something that I'm often asked to speak about and I've had success in social media but that doesn't mean I would know how to transform a unsuccessful business into a successful yeah. business using social media mm-hmm. I can certainly offer my experience yeah um, but People, I think, seek a recipe, uh, you know, some secret source, and I am so sceptical about people selling 
that because mm. I think it's so unique to your business story and your audience and everything. So, um, and that, yeah, I think I learn through, I love telling, um, I suppose I sh- overshare on the floors and maybe I undersell and want to overdeliver. I think that's my kind of modus operandi. Yeah, well, that's probably, um, well, that will be one of your keys to success though and that you can share with others. Possibly, possibly. I, yeah, I, I do. I have found the, I have found communication as one of the key joys of this job that I'm in, for sure. Being able to tell a story and and make people listen and trying, I suppose, to engage my observational skills and then kind of craft a message that's bite sized that people can digest. That's mm-hmm. one of the things I see now as as a strength. Awesome. So going back. So I'm just thinking I'd love to ask you about what you did before, like whether there were skills you had already. And I thought I've heard on the Motherland podcast um, mm. the story about how you met your now husband. Just for those that don't know, you know, that you are a city girl. And can you talk us through that? Yeah. So um, Jack went to boarding school in Sydney. And when we were about 14, we went trick-or-treating one night and um he threw an egg at me and I caught it, which he didn't expect. And I threw it back and it hit him. And that was kind of the beginning of the story. And he was a he was the son of a farmer and was always going to live a life on the land. And, you know, it was really in his blood from even that young age. So even though we met on the streets of, of a you know, cushy suburb in Sydney, I knew very quickly that if we were going to be together, it would be a farming life that I'd be committing to. And so we stayed together through those high school years um, and university, and then eventually he moved home and and I followed him. Pretty amazing to meet when you're 14. Not many people can say that. <laughs> there were a couple of bumps in the road. We, we broke up a couple of times, but we found our way back to each other. And, yes, it... it um, I think it's good, isn't it, that you broke up a bit and had some really hardship? Good. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I don't, really good is a is a funny way of putting it, but I think that was critical, yeah. Mm. Because also I was a stiff and he wasn't. Yeah. And so um, he had to sacrifice a lot through those really young, wild years um, yeah. to be with me. So there were times when um, it made sense to test each other, test the relationship, I suppose. He... He broke up with me the Friday before the Year Twelve exam started, which is like yeah. one hundred and one. Don't get in a serious. Oh no! I know. Um, and I was heartbroken, and it was real heartbreak. I mean, I reflect on it now, and I think that that was real. Even at mm-hmm. I don't know, I've been seventeen. Um, I think it was as real as anything. And then, and and he and you know, even at the, I suppose he was mature enough to know that he needed to. Un- to work it out whether he, mm. we should be together, and then later uh, when we finished school, so we got back together quite quickly. And after exams, or so you had this like <laughs> terrible few weeks. <laughs> well, you know, it's not the worst thing to not <coughs> care about the exams. Like I didn't really care, mm. and it's, I think that there's almost there's almost value in that because um, you just get through it. Yeah, and then yeah, we after school we were going overseas. We were both spending a year overseas on on slightly different programs, um, and I kind of insisted at that point that we needed to break up. And I think I needed to to yeah to choose 
the relationship again or choose him again and, mm-hmm. and he needed to do the same. So we spent some time apart and then ran into each other in Scotland on Halloween. Oh, and that's so- your special, <laughs> is that when you celebrate your anniversary? And- <laughs> you should. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we got back together. Love it. Mm. And then you, you obviously knew that you were going to be moving to the farm after, you know, things were serious for a while. How was the shift? Hard really hard and I remember this because I as I said I, I knew it was coming and I loved the country I had cousins in the country I didn't think it'd be it was I wasn't a city girl who hated the very idea of it but the change was hard in the ways I didn't anticipate I suppose and I remember cr- packing up my Corolla Toyota Corolla he'd come down in a ute to help me move and both of us drove off from my parents place and I didn't even know I was sad about it like I, I, that wasn't a conscious feeling, but I just burst into tears on the as soon as I hit the road, and we were in convoy the whole way. So I'd he'd be like taking over me, and I'd stop crying for the as the car passed me, and then I'd start falling <laughs> again. Um, and yeah, I think it, the waking up the next morning, he he was gone. He he'd gone off to work, mm-hmm. which is so typical. Mm-hmm. It was I thought, what the like, what am I doing here? Yeah. Um, and then we had um, we had a baptism of fire with flood actually, um, and had some really big, massive decisions to make um, about the business and about our future. You know, within a couple of years, I was in my late twenties. We were taking on so much responsibility, so there was no shortage of stress and seeing each other at our worst in a way um well not at our worst it's at our most challenged so there was a lot to get through in those early years and one of the things that surprised me was the you know just I well actually as you and I were speaking about that just that the ongoing challenge of knowing why what the purpose of your life is when you're Mm -hmm when you're following somebody else's passion yeah, and how you can be useful. And I thought I would contribute to the farm. I thought that's what, what I would do. And I had an interest in it, but when I first moved out, I got a job straight away. So I started, you know, I think I moved on a Sunday and I started on a Monday in this new role that required me to travel quite a lot. You know, it was a um, community development role for the government. And so I would, be away during the week and then home on the weekends and and it was important for us that I had a salary but it meant that I didn't have that I didn't have any time to ease into getting to know what it was to run a farm and to absorb some of the skills and knowledge and and I think I missed that completely mm-hmm. um so I never became a farmer I never I kind of just helped Jack occasionally when he needed it and so I had to seek purpose elsewhere mm-hmm. and you know some of the things you give up in I thought I'd care about you know not having takeaway and not mm-hmm. having but it wasn't so much that it was anonymity that I missed I, I missed the idea that you could be in everything's so visible when you live in a small community mm. so successes and failures are known by all mm-hmm. history is known you know who you are and where you come from all of that was I'd walk in early on to a shop and they'd say, oh, you're, you know, you're Jack's wife or not wife, you're Jack's girlfriend. How are you liking it? You know, which is such a nice thing. Now I love that about mm. Bush, but I found that confronting and invasive 
and so it was a cultural uh, a culture shock I think mm-hmm. um, and yeah some of the things that I suppose I were part of my identity you know friends family sport they all disappear and you have to rebuild so that I think that goes on for a lifetime from what I've heard from other women who have moved out here yeah and do you think you've you've sort of done that with doing doing buy from the bush you've taken a bigger step than no I see others doing it in other ways I Mm -hmm. think this is just um it does feel like I've used my skills to be Mm -hmm. useful so that's good um but all around me one of the things I'm conscious of with buy from the bush is you get so much recognition because it's it's a it's a macro movement I suppose Mm -hmm. but in my community there's women who do things that are so valuable at a very small micro level, very invisible. That's a big part of their lives and yeah. their contribution is enormous. So, yeah, I, I think I don't know whether I've, I don't know whether it feels realised, that sense of meaning and purpose, but, it, yeah, it has it has been enjoyable and rewarding for sure. Yeah, awesome. Now, when I listened to your interview with Steph on the Motherland, must have been a couple of years ago now, was it? It would have been, yeah. Yeah. Um, you talked briefly about, or something you said was that expectation that women look after their husbands in rural communities. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, I'm with you there. I feel like that's something I've sort of had to fight against and kind of like right. a, not not fight against, but say, hold on a minute. Why should the female have to do that particular role Mm. and like my husband loves cooking I do some cooking he does a bit of cooking my grandmother thinks it's terrible that he has to do some cooking (laughs) (laughs) so where are you at with that Um, do you feel pressure well I can't remember what I said to Steph I I feel I think I'm a bit I think I feel some nuance in that area because, yes, I find it limiting some of the expectations put on women and men in rural communities. I think we are a little bit um, behind my friends in the city or the people I know in the city. But I will say I think it's there's a lot of common sense in the structures of a of a household in the bush. So. My husband's family are Lebanese and his mum is the ultimate homemaker and mother and partner. Um, and she, she'll she make a meal and have a note on it saying, you know, stuff zucchini for John. She calls Jack Johnny. So stuff zucchini for Johnny as if to say, like, get your hands off it, get your mitts off it, Grace. It's, <laughs> it's for my son. <laughs> um, but... There, I just, I suppose I I came from a household where my mum was unbelievably bright and unbelievably capable and, and dedicated her life to being a great partner to my dad and a mum and didn't get paid for the work she did. She hates me, hates the idea of a, of saying a stay at home mum. She, and, and also she always corrects anybody who says, oh, you know, they've gone back to work. She says, well, they are working. They're just not getting paid mm. for it. So I, I come from a household that worked really well because of the, as my mum puts it, the, there's a marriage is a contract mm-hmm. and you both agree to what you're going to bring 
to the marriage mm-hmm. and whatever that that contribution is if you're on agreeable terms it's a good position to be in so they had a certain contract i believe in that and i think many farming families you know may not describe it that way but i think they're opting into a, a type of contract and i think there's a i think there's a lot of meaning to be drawn from making harvest meals and feeding mouths at busy times on there there's I like the idea of a co-contributor to farming success being a carer and a nurturer, and yet I think it's so necessary and essential for our communities if both partners are fulfilling their potential. So they're contributing in a way that is tapping into their particular strength and their particular skill set, and I just see so many women who are incredibly capable and possibly don't have the opportunity to, you know, gain financial benefit from that capability because they're so committed to being a good partner and a good mother. So so I think we've, there's kind of a net loss for rural communities um, if women, particularly women, but if both partners in a household aren't engaged mm-hmm. completely in both inside the household and out of it. So I'm I'm reluctant to, I suppose, often I'm talking about, the potential of women in business, women in small business, women doing off-farm things, generating income. I'm always a little bit cautious to say how much I admire the the families where both partners are contributing to the farm because I think if you care, if, if somehow that is your contract and that and that works, I almost you know it's it's the ideal in some ways for me. Mm. If that yeah, if I if I could have done that, I probably would be doing it. But two agree, people. Jack, sorry, What's... just to finish no. what you were saying. Jack cooks and he cleans and he helps with the kids. And um, I wouldn't dare kind of undermine. Like he's better at that than me, for sure. Yeah. So do you think that also comes in? Because I, yeah, I'm the same. I see so many successful husband and wife duos mm. who are on the farms, and some of the time the female is a bright is the brains behind the operation. Yeah, <laughs> and it just works so well. But yes. not all couples have that, and I think potentially, I don't know if you agree, but back in the day, the woman was required to do particular roles, and then that's evolved and changed. But there are still some women doing some traditional roles, but that's because they're good at it, they're passionate about it. Their that's their strength. Is that sort of what you're saying? I think that is the ideal. What you just mm. described. I think we're not there yet. I think there are women who are doing it because they feel that is that's the expectation of them. And, you know, I, I suppose I have more conversations in my rural setting with my rural friends than I do with my old friends from the city that revolve around guilt that they're not, you know, guilt that they um, haven't done the garden, guilt that they mm. haven't put meals in the freezer for when they go away on a work trip like they're going on a work trip and they mm. are putting meals in the freezer for their partner mm. there that that conversation where we are expected to be the primary nurturer ahead of other interests mm-hmm. is certainly something I feel way more in the bush than I do in mm. the city and there's I'm probably I'm probably somebody who understands the need for it because my husband works 
ridiculously long hours. It's ridiculously physical. That is not something that my friends in the city are working alongside. So the idea that they need to eat when they when they have a minute, when mm-hmm. they get in, there needs to be food. taking meals out to the paddock so that the machines don't have to stop working in harvest. Mm-hmm. It, there's some specific things that make it very sensible and practical for there to be a full-time carer involved. Mm-hmm. But it can be somewhat disheartening if that role isn't really valued in mm. the way that the 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 um the job that draws a wage is you know yes. that's that's the part that i find really disappointing and also can it be sometimes how that person potentially feels about that inwardly Mm. as well and not just they may be valued but it may not align with their own sense of self or their like what we talked about and their self-identity yes and I get that a lot from the small business owners in buy from the bush what they say to me is when they show their gratitude to buy from the bush it's very it's it's very often not about the money it's not about the cash flow it's about the the feeling of recognition, visibility, purpose. Yeah. I've got one during the week of somebody saying it's given me belonging, this sense of belonging that she didn't have before. Those are the things that make it so valuable to have successful, a successful small business community, um, particularly women-led in rural and regional Australia because vibrant communities attract vibrant people. And I yeah. think... Um, yeah, I, I, I think there's so much to be gained by women realising their full potential off-farm as well as on-farm. And and um, I have a, a couple of stories that relate to that. One is a, a retailer who I, I was in her store one day quite early on in Buy From The Bush, but she had done exceptionally well um, from the, the traction around Buy From The Bush and because her business was already very successful. Um, and she was telling me that her father-in-law, her farming father-in-law, had always said that kind of treated her business as a nice little hobby that she did, something nice, something cute that she does um, to keep herself happy. And in the wake of of the success of, you know, those early months of Buy From The Bush, she realised that he his language had started to shift and the way he spoke to her about her job had started to shift and I think it was coming from everybody else's celebration of her her gift her gift in business um and also he was seeing numbers that were undeniable you couldn't kind of deny that this was not just a nice little hobby so it's the first time his interest was peaked and and he realized it was a business and then another letter I got from a woman who um was in central Queensland and she had she sent me a photo of a of a bulldozer being unloaded um and she said I just want to tell you what buy from the bush has done for my family because in just before it I was kind of just salivating at the idea of getting to profit for you know the last couple of years I've been working towards getting towards you know the profit phase of my business and um and today our dozer arrived and and it looks nothing like my dream kitchen but it's a pretty fitting payment for all the work that my husband has done in my business while farming's been put on hold in the drought. And so it's one of those things where you think it's a tangible contributor to a farming business when that off, you know, in, in the cycles of, of um, 
you know, of farming that we know will come and go, mm. those off-farm businesses. It's stable income, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to not value that once you see customers mm-hmm. um, buying in. Yeah. You know? And it is a whole family farm approach. It's that the combination of the two businesses working together mm-hmm. as one and benefiting each other and tax. If one's not going well, you can yeah. sort out the tax for the other one. Yeah. Yeah. While we're still on this topic, I think we also need to mention how many women too nowadays, my mother did as well, are actually out there doing the physical work as well mm-hmm. or or running farms in some cases as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I secretly want to make a documentary about some of the women I know working on farm because they're some of the most interesting women. Because also they step off, they step out of the paddock and they drive to the bus stop and they meet the bus stop and they pick the kids up, they take the kids home, they get something and then they're back on a piece of machinery or they're back on a bike mm-hmm. um, mustering. And then they're also, you know, the next morning on tuck shop or mm-hmm. many of them have businesses also. So it's this, I mean, the idea that you can put that their headspace is both in a farming context, in a household, you know, mm. parental context, running their own business on the side Um and often not, I don't know whether we see enough of that, mm. like we, whether we see enough of that being part of the modern rural landscape, yeah. the woman who is a farmer mm. slash, you know, three other things also. Yeah. I've definitely noticed it a lot in the, the next generation. So people in the early 20s, mid 20s, most of the people that come and work for us, Lincoln students over summer are now females. Mm. And some of them want to actually be farmers. Some of them want to get into agribusiness of some sort. Mm-hmm. But what I love is they're in their farm gears and they're just like getting stuck in really dirty. And then next minute you see them for, in the weekend and they are doled up to the nines. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just this like beautiful contrast. Totally. And we know that. I mean, that's we're, we're complex beasts. Of yeah. course. Of course. So I wanted to ask what your career was before you moved to the farm. It was just being born, really. I started in, it was it was recreation planning for a local council, but that kind of doesn't describe how interesting it was, I suppose, because what I was interested in was how sports, the arts, tourism could be used in as a means of community development. So I was um, a recreation planner at a local council in an ethnically diverse community in Sydney um, that had lots going on. And so sport and recreation was was the connector to facilitate community, I suppose. So I was doing that for a while. And then when I moved to Warren, I got a job for um, the Department of Sport and Recreation, so a state government agency um, working in Indigenous youth engagement. So again, using sport as a means for engaging young people. And then I moved into another kind of, this time a not-for-profit youth organisation, working with disengaged youth in my local community. And on maternity leave from that, which I'm not even sure it was technically maternity leave, but I was having a break while I was having a baby. And one of my husband's business analysts came out um, and was pitching a startup at a pitch fest. And the the idea was an online employment platform for agriculture, connecting 
job seekers in ag with farmers. And I was really curious and interested immediately because we felt the problem, that problem of um, talent, acquiring talent in on our farm. And so I helped her just with that pitch over the couple of days that she was at the farm. And when she won her she won the pitch fest and she started her business and she came and asked if I would work with her. And eventually I worked for equity in that business. So that was my first and only foray into that online startup world, building a website, trying to get a customer, um, using social media to, to as a sales funnel, all of those things that then informed Buy From The Bush. So I think Buy From The Bush came along as a bit of a, a wonderful kind of combination of that community development experience and the experience of starting that online business. Isn't it amazing how things do combine and evolve into something that's your, that's your very own. And so talk us through those early days, the whirlwind of, you know, what did you launch? How did it, how did it look? What happened? So it was an Instagram account and that was all (laughs) like, yeah. When I say, I mean, I, I started writing a letter one day because I'd just heard an interview on the drought and it was frustrating and it was missing the point and I wanted to somehow communicate what was the actual lived experience of this really prolonged, I, I talk as if, you know, obviously for New, New Zealand listeners, they won't have a clue about what we were going through in 2019 we were heading into about our third year of drought in our area of New South Wales, but the drought was affecting Queensland, New South Wales and, and parts of Victoria. Um, it was prolonged and severe and about as bad, well, it was as bad as it had ever been, the worst on record. And it was trending in the news, but in this really two-dimensional way in the sense that they'd get, they'd somehow find these farmers that I don't know who or where they were from, and it was really poor bugger stuff. And the, you know, as always is the case, I think the bush trends in crisis. And so you see the same images of, you know, cracked earth and and dying sheep. And yet all around me in my community, I was seeing the the implications of, of drought in small business, in households, mm-hmm. on women, on communities and school communities. So anyway, I started writing this letter and then halfway through I thought, I, what is this? Like, who's this even to? What's my call to action? What am I asking for? And so I closed the letter and I opened Canva and start and designed a, a logo and just started an Instagram account and then began approaching businesses in my community who were making cool stuff or selling cool stuff and said, can I share it? Can I share your content on my Buy From The Bush page? And then you know, went over and created a Facebook account a couple of days later when I realised I, sh- I should do that too. Mm. And really it was, as, it was as simple as trying to get people in the city to do their Christmas shopping in the bush that year and by way of showcasing the very best bits. So I was pretty intentional about how I curated the site and I had a friend, Millie, who was working with me at the time and and so we would ask businesses to use the hashtag buy from the bush and we would find the coolest stuff that we thought that people in the city might like and we'd share it and inevitably it sold out it started selling you know not only those retailers out of stock but their suppliers I was getting emails from wholesalers saying you've changed our business because our retailers are 
you know, trebling their orders all of a sudden. And the makers and creators that were diversifying their income because the on-farm income had dried up were, you know, suddenly having to make around the clock and loading up their land cruisers and traveling hundreds of kilometers to the post office and all of those lovely, it became this beautiful story to tell. And, and I think it, it gave the customers instant gratification that, oh my God, I just ordered that. And there's that business owner smiling with a big docket, you know, yeah. changing their lives. So the community built really quickly. We, we got hundreds of thousands of followers. And so then, you've got, sorry, you've got 250K at the moment. Yes. Did that, did you get to what were the numbers in those first few weeks or I how long I was make, it? I think I make this up every time I say it, I think, was that even true? I can't yeah. remember. But I, I reckon we got a hundred thousand in about a month. Wow. So, yeah, it was crazy. And I had these influencers, <laughs> funny influencers messaging me saying, how did you just, like, I've just tracked your growth in the last 24 hours. What are you doing? <laughs> I was like, I'm not, uh, I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. But just this, I think everybody took on the ownership of sharing it with their friends. It was quite viral in the sense that, as I said, we were instantly, like I was using Instagram stories to to share messages that I'd received from businesses mm -hmm. whose lives were changing as a result. And that was fun to follow, obviously. Mm. And we also, I had the help of Georgie Robertson from regional PR. She's based in Wagga and she contacted me early on and said, I think I can help you with this. And she became this critical cog in the wheel in terms of, we didn't really have to hustle at that stage for PR, but she certainly provided me a lot of insight and and became a filter for any sort of media requests and would, you know, was able to educate me and, you know, well, this one is going to have this reach with this audience. So that's worth our while. This one may not be worth our while. And so we did a hell of a lot of PR. Like that was really my job was just PRing the hell out of this idea for a year. And then we, we got a big partner on board and we launched a website a year later and that was and that was now in the wake of covid and australia had also had some pretty severe bushfires so it was our first movement into generating revenue and trying to make it a a business model as opposed to just a, a community mm -hmm. and and yeah and that thrust us into a whole nother level of work and having to pay wages and build a team and it became a business from that point on. And I also launched a, a Stay in the Bush website, which was an accommodation offering rural accommodation directory. And that had a lot of traction because international travel was locked down. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that, that was kind of a really busy year. In fact, three years. Amazing. Now, I am very wary of your time. Have you got just a wee bit longer? A smaller yes. wee, that's a very Kiwi word. I know, I love it. Um, yes, I do. Well, we could go on for hours. I'll just do one more topic. I'm enjoying uh, it. You, I feel oh, like good. it's not because oh, I'm so conscious of saying the same thing. Yes. Oh, it's so boring. I don't know yeah. if you would listen. Um, so it's lovely to. You feel like it's we've covered some different topics. Yeah. Good, yeah, yeah. good. Because yeah. um, I do, they've got other questions around the challenges and highs and lows of Buy from the Bush, but I feel like we've covered it amongst yeah, our conversations. Right. So. I mean, motherhood, you feel like you've talked about this a lot, but we can't really do a podcast with a mother of four without mentioning it. Yeah, sure. How's that been for you? 
Oh, wow. <laughs> pretty <laughs> pretty um, general question, isn't it? Pretty broad question. It's been pretty good. Pretty good. No, it has been evolving. So we, I've had been having kids. My eldest is 11. My youngest yep. is three. I had three quickly and then had a five-year gap. So I've had this lovely diversity in um in my approach, I think, and also and um, also in the in the experience of parenting in the household, because three kids under it was almost three kids under three. I think my eldest was three and a bit when I had the third. So, um, no, three under four. Sorry, but the idea that you don't really have a lot of time to enjoy it, like it's work. It's mm. so much work, and it's so much. Um, kind of rolling on from day to day, just rolling through life. You're hoping it gets easier. You you think you're yourself, yeah. but upon reflection, you I don't. It's like you're a shadow for mm. a few years. So then, um, our youngest got to four, and I and I realized I was pregnant again. Um, and life, I think, when your youngest gets to four, is when life gets a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah. My sisters with kids who are older than me say just you wait it's about to get so much harder but at that in that early stage um so I was thrust back into the pregnancy and then newborn stuff um just when all the kids were getting in the car by themselves putting on their seatbelts and, <laughs> yeah. not um, having day naps and yes but but I know now that it's so fleeting and every stage is so fleeting mm. and August my youngest has just been almost um pure joy and and the she's three and a half ish and I'm actually finding it quite difficult right now but apart from that it's just been um a learning in how you know how you approach it, it, the difference mm -hmm. is in how I have approached it rather than anything the kids are doing differently yeah. um and I've really enjoyed that and and I think um the other thing is that you you're more comfortable in asking for help as time goes on as well I can I call on friends a lot more than I I think the first time around you especially with the first baby you think you can do it yourself you think yep. you should be able to do it yourself I was not a I didn't find it easy like some people do um I just it was messy so mm -hmm. messy that first babe um and so yeah I think it's been evolving I, I can't say I can't use one adjective because um but I do, one of the things that I remember feeling really strongly when my firstborn was in a plastic, in that plastic tub thing in the um, hospital room with me, I remember just looking down at this baby and, and wanting to know what she'd be like, like wanting to know what company she would be for me yeah. when I was older, that, that kind of relationship. And now she's 11 and I've got that satisfaction of oh, oh my gosh the person in you is is now what I get to know and um and we you know she's going to boarding school next year and um which is a sad reality of of living where we live and I think that will be a whole nother chapter so if you yeah I don't know watch this space I might yeah. feel differently in a little while yeah, so with boarding school because that's a very big thing in my community as well and I've got a child at boarding school how is it for you when you, sorry, for a bit of context, I find when both parents went to boarding school, like in my case, it's an right. e easy decision. 
yeah. but when one didn't, it can be quite hard because yes. yeah, it yes. feels like an even bigger deal. Yes, it does. Um, yeah, I loved high school. My husband absolutely loved high school. I had lots of boarding friends, yeah. even though my school wasn't a boarding school and I didn't board. I know the value of boarding. Like that's, I'm already converted in cool. the gift it gives people. Yeah. Um, I do find it difficult though, the idea mm. of sending a child away. I think especially for some reason for me, it's especially my daughters. I think for my husband, it's the idea of sending his son, funnily enough. Mm. Um, this, what I got in arriving home to my mum every afternoon was something that I cherish. Mm-hmm. So I know that we 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 won't have that and that mm. makes me sad. Um, I just think, I, I suppose I have to trust that the benefits outweigh the negatives. I find it, I lament the idea that we that I'm not investing in my local high school here. Um, that decision is an uncomfortable one for me. I think mm-hmm. the idea that I've chosen to send, to, to kind of pay for private boarding school, even though I love the, like I, I'm, I love boarding schools. I love their, I love their history. I love the community networks. I think it's so valuable. Um, but I feel torn because I know that we are damaging our local community mm-hmm. um, by everyone not investing in that local school. So, mm. yeah, that's the part that I've, well, a couple of bits that are challenging for me and that's one of them. Do you think if everybody kept their children and no one went to boarding school, it would yes. negate some of the need? Yes. Yeah, I do. I think if we all backed it in. The the truth is I went to a a boarding school expo in my in my locus local big town. So all the boarding schools from all over the state or country come and they and they essentially sell their school to you. And you wander through. And I had this instant allergic reaction. Like I walked in and just wanted to walk back out. I don't know why. I, <laughs> I was so grossed out. And then it ended up being incredibly useful to me. But but I had thought that I would send my kids away later. So they would have a couple of years with us. And I may still, like this is just my, I'm, I'm going to, we're going to test as we go. Mm-hmm. But the feedback I got from a couple of schools and one of them looked at my name badge and saw where I lived, which is a relatively small community um, and it's you know a long way from Sydney she said look I can see where you're from if you were from here in this regional center I would say that would be okay you could come in your nine or ten um, and make and be okay but the further west you go the harder it is for them to catch up mm-hmm. and so unfortunately I think that's that is the hard truth mm. and I Oh my God, that's so depressing on so many mm. levels. We've got the loveliest school, primary school that my kids go to. They're so happy. They do such a great job. Um, I'm not quite sure why. Uh, I think there's lots of reasons um, why communities further west and for you know the more isolated you are, the further behind you fall. Is that the same in New Zealand? Would you say is that a, is that an experience? Yeah, definitely. I've found with my with my husband with my um, son going away that he was quite behind on right but when we're talking about being behind this is about in class stuff they're ahead on other yeah exactly aren't they so many people say that yeah Mm. and I can see that and I mean it's interesting having straddled both you know growing up in the city living here and raising kids here 
the assumptions that both communities make about the other are so often wrong. And, you know, I think most people assume that if you grow up in the city, you you don't, you know, you don't know your neighbours. <laughs> you, yeah. you haven't really had a childhood. You've had no space. You've not, um, <laughs> that wasn't my experience at all. We had this mm. incredible life. So, but I, one thing I do think is, is real is that the kids I know who grow up in the bush tend to have a relationship with adults that is much more comfortable, much more mature, much more kind of advanced mm. than kids in the city. And, and, that stands them in great stead, I think, as they go away. Mm. So, and they've, you know, the hard work that they've absorbed. I will say, though, that Jack always says that I'm raising city kids in the bush. And I think I am. <laughs> That's the only people I know how to raise. Um, so I don't know that my kids are going to be the hard workers, but they maybe they'll learn from others. And is that because you're not going out on the farm as much because you're busy with other things and because you didn't I get that year more, to get into it? I think it's more small things like, um, you know, I'm not as observant as country people are. So my kids, you know, I'm not telling the kids about changes in plants, trees, birds. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not outside all the time myself so the kids are at my feet. Like yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm kind, I'm kind of underselling myself. Like I'm not hopeless, but um, there is something that just, I don't know. It's just cultural. Obviously, the way I parent is the way I was parented. Mm. And Jack finds it depressing sometimes if you get, you know, <laughs> if his kids are in house clothes and not outside, you know, exploring the creek like he was. Mm-hmm. And what I what I say back to him often is that agriculture, like he works now in corporate agriculture, so he he manages farms for a big corporate farm, and it's not so easy to take your kids with you out in the paddock and and I think you know ag has shifted the mm. skills shifted but so I challenge him as to you know his role in that fewer, so. yeah his role and there's yeah. fewer, fewer kids who are working at the age of nine and you know all of those things that we harp on about back in our day so it's it's kind of he needs to take up the mantle and which he 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 does when he can and I'm and every time I'm like what he was doing what? My eight-year-old was what? Yeah. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. <laughs> yeah. um, that just got me thinking about the rural and um, city divide that people talk about a lot here in New Zealand and um, they do in Australia, don't they? But really, I mean, there's potentially a big divide in certain people, but in lots of other ways, we're getting closer, aren't we? Yeah, I agree. I think it's a beat up. Um, mm. I think there's... there's there's certainly a lack of understanding, like of deep understanding, but of course there is because how could you know what life was like yeah. um, somewhere else unless you'd lived it? So that's, I always think it's on us. It's on people in the bush to tell their story, to sell their story in big ways. The modesty, I'm sure this is the same in New Zealand, the modesty that runs so deep in rural mm. communities is such a barrier to that connection or, or overcoming that lack of understanding. But, in, I mean, if anything, I've seen enormous proof that people in the city um, care deeply and and have a great nostalgia. Like I get thanked by people for connecting them to an Australian identity they felt was lost in, in time. So, and also having this, 
I don't know whether this is the same in New Zealand, but there is renewed interest from the media. Certainly there is strong interest from the media in terms of stories coming out of regional Australia. Mm-hmm. I think there's enormous opportunity, but there are certain assumptions that we need to kind of break through and, and mm. part of it's that pity cycle that, you know, oh, those poor buggers who live in the bush. I really reject that. Mm-hmm. Maybe in New Zealand? Um, is there- not so much. Um, yeah. There's a lot more of the environmental issues and yeah. farmers are the the political stance on farmers are ruining the world. Yes, is quite strong. Yes, um, yeah, which has been pretty challenging the last few years. Yeah, mm. okay. um, yeah, but I think when you actually stop and talk to individual people, they don't think that. No. Do you know so, what I mean? It's yeah. it's makes it seems it gets blown up bigger than what it actually is. I agree because it's a, it's an outrage story. It's a mm. great, it's, it's, a, it's it's a media and outrage. politicians making it bigger than it actually is. Yeah. Yeah, I had a man ask me a cotton grower in a and a I'd, I'd done a talk and he put his hand up and said I it really hurts me when I see that we are, um, you know, the the way we are covered in the media as destroyers, you know, as Mm. the the big baddies in an environmental sense, how can, he was asking how how we can kind of counter that Mm. given um, that we've had success with Bike from the Bush in in getting our story out there. Um, And, I mean, this is such a hard I didn't really have a sufficient answer for him, but I do think these days, like if I were industry bodies, I would be upskilling growers and pastoralists and, um, you know, people in the industry to use digital media to tell their story more and more and more and more Mm. because we're all all capable of it now. Um, And I do think it, even though there is a very loud, you know, squeaky wheel, around climate and uh, environmental issues. And, I mean, I think, by the way, that squeaky wheel doesn't understand how informed and active so many farmers are in yeah, that space. Exactly, and how much but, they do care about the environment and, uh, that's right. and and their animals and, yeah. Exactly. But I do, yeah, I, I, I do think that, as you said, on an individual basis, on a one-to-one basis, access matters. Like if you can inform yourself, if you're a person in the city and you, you might be sitting on the fence, you need access and the mm. access is, is the thing that we need to provide, I suppose, through kind of putting out our stories. So, um, yeah, it's I, I think that divide is convenient sometimes depending on, you know, the media yeah. story today. Yeah. yeah. And so could that be a direction for Buy From The Bush? My interest is in telling stories for sure, in making people care. Like that's I want people to care so that, the next crisis that comes along, they're empowered and engaged. So I think the challenge is in finding cool stories to share. That's, that's I suppose, what I've always been motivated by and what I will continue to be. I'm not so interested in being a political instrument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, that makes sense. Now I'm going to let you go. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, actually, first note, I'll do my fun t- 10 questions. I've got, um, and then when I say I'm going to let you go, it's more that I'm like, got all these questions coming and I'm like, no, Kate, just stay back. Let Grace get on with her day. We can have a part two. We can have a yeah, part two. Totally. All right. We normally just finish with 10 sort of fun questions. And I'm just flicking through, finding your ones. Here we go. Favorite way to exercise? Nipple. Could have guessed but, I mean, sorry, that's the dream, but in reality, walking. Okay. <laughs> I saw something the other day on social media. I sent it to my friend, yeah. walking netball. Oh, <laughs> quite hard. You pass to each other while you're walking. Wait, well, what well no, you're game? playing netball, but you're not allowed to run. Oh, oh, bugger that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that. it's for, you know, when we're a bit older, we could resort to that. Oh, exactly. I've seen that. Wait, what position were you? Can I Goal guess? attack. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, I just ruined it. <laughs> Oh my God, let's play. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've, we've had a couple of games the last three weeks against the high school team. I play in a basketball comp here, but netball really is my main sport and oh, it's been so fun. Has it? Yeah. And it's, oh. I realized that it was really missing. Like yeah. that basketball was nearly filling the hole, but not quite. Yes. And yeah, so fun. I, can, I get that. Yeah. Hey, actually, you know what we should have spoken about? Mm. I've got a fair few opinions. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the Football World Cup and this, like, amazing movement. I got I became obsessed. Yeah, I, like, it was amazing. We were obsessed with the Aussie team. We're Kiwis. It's never happened have we wanted an Aussie sports team well, to win, ever. Likewise, I think we don't have the rivalry in, in football. So, likewise, there was, like, so much love for the, for the New Zealand team. But I watched the the Disney doco and everything in the lead up. So I became really invested. And then, but then I, I, we won't talk about it now, but I've just been a little bit frustrated by the chat that was suddenly arrived at like recognizing women's yeah. sport. Because simultaneously, the, obviously the netball world cup's going on and getting absolutely no. Mm, there's still so and, much work to go and it's been ongoing for years, hasn't it? Yeah. Like it's mm. so, cause in our, I don't, you probably have very little interest in this, but the prime minister, kind of came out with this big funding package for women's sport and, and I thought oh that's so embarrassing like if it's taken this world it's taken this public kind of swell to throw throw us a bone basically mm. um but also not only that the, the thing that I've got opinions on I suppose is how well the the world cup to, like how well they use storytelling and for mm. the Matilda I'm going to use the Matilda specifically because that's what the success was. The idea that they, it's not women's sport that should be celebrated right now. It's football, the Matildas brand, the way they crafted that brand, mm-hmm. and they have over generations, I think, but but particularly in the lead up to the World Cup, like that should be studied as a case study in terms of how effective they included people, they mm-hmm. sold a cool, engaging story and brand, and it appealed to, to both men and women. Like, I think it's simplistic to think it's just that everybody cares about female yeah. sport. Yeah. Because anyway. um, it's very similar to the Black Ferns won the World Cup last year and that was the same. And it just got me thinking now, those are both traditionally male sports. I wonder mm-hmm. if that has something to do with it as well. Of course it does. Yeah. Of course it does. Yeah. Because so it's the men still watching their favourite sport. Yeah. It just happens yeah. to be females doing it yeah yeah absolutely that has and I don't know that anybody's really talking about that anyway sideline sorry (laughs) it's all good it's good topics um (laughs) any insecurities related to exercise 
now it's about a lack of skill. I, I once kind of used my body a lot and now I don't use my body much at all. So training with my friends was like a real reality check the other day thinking, oh, my God, no strength. Yeah. Yeah, it's about strength rather than appearance. Yes, yes. And then the older we get, the more important that becomes, both mm. to us and actually how important it becomes for our for our lives and how we function day to day. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, I've got no pelvic floor. Like the pelvic floor is gone and I need to make time to improve it and I don't. Mm. So, you know, all of that. And when I scream at my kids, I wee. Like yeah. that's a low point in the week, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um as the kids get older I'm sure you'll have more time to yes yeah prioritize it yes true yeah and maybe you should be doing some wee pelvic floors while you're having dinner with your husband so you're doing double ups yeah, or, or podcasting I should have been doing it for the last hour actually do you know that's what I should actually do is the start of it because I need more work on mine when I play basketball it's not always oh. the best yeah and we have all the all the amazing women's health physios on our platform and I've done a, done some and I need to do more um, but that's what we should do is do a wee um, pelvic floor podcast every day every time yes good one yeah. this might be chucking you in the deep end favorite bush business it's obviously not buy from the bush <laughs> oh god <laughs> I don't because do, literally as you're asking it 10 jumped into my yeah. head but I, I'll I won't choose one that's can I I'm going to talk about two that aren't in our community. So mm -hmm. I love you all, everybody who's a buy from the bush business, <laughs> and I could tell ten thousand stories about you guys. But one is big business, one small. So Bird's Nest is a online fashion business based in Cooma, which is in the snowy mountains of New South Wales. Mm -hmm. It's a small town that happens to have a lot of through traffic for for the ski season. Like it's it's. It's unusual, I suppose. Anyway, a lady called Jane Kay is the founder and she's a genius and she's built, it just got voted best online retailer at the Retail Awards. It's based in rural Australia. She's She employs, I'm going to get the number wrong, but let's say 150 people, but it could be 400. Oh, but wow. Yeah, it's, it's a huge business. It is the greatest example of how living where we live shouldn't stop our vision for what a business can become and she's a leader not only in e-commerce but in kind of in how she has built that team and um, she's really innovative and everything so if people are interested there's lots of podcasts with her and everything but she and also I mean I love the business but also she has offered you know all sorts of support to me over the last nice. few years so she's pretty incredible and also this is kind of slightly different but in my small community we as part of buy from the bush we did this um, big break competition which was a social media comp where people had to pitch their idea for a business and it didn't have to be high tech like so many pitch fests are it was just a good idea it might, they might have even been in business but they could pitch like a a new fashion line or something um anyway a family in my local community pitched and they pitched a coffee shop kind of slash um, boutique and they didn't win the comp or anything, but they went on to open up this cafe retailer and it has the, it's just an example of the quality of life 
that can be brought into a community when a business opens up like that because mm-hmm. um, I think it has evolved as well. I think it was originally going to be more boutique and just coffee on the side. It's now more of a coffee shop boutique on the side, I think, and it's a meeting place and it's a place where we can kind of go and congregate. Like sometimes mm-hmm. you just are sitting there and I, I had this wonderful experience of um, this retired farmer, very successful businessman and farmer, um, he we would meet there every week and talk about a project to get more people to move to our town. And so mm-hmm. him and I and another um, woman would meet and we'd chat and then it evolved into whoever kind of was coming in who might have something interesting to say would sit down at our table and we had this lovely informal meeting space which spawned all sorts of ideas and, and he's just passed away, that fellow, a couple of weeks ago and they did this lovely post this business about what it is to host to to be the you know what a privilege it is to be a host of that to be able to facilitate that community mm. connection so that's one of my favorite businesses as well it's called Ellerslie Lane mm-hmm. and it's a um it's it just has gifted the community so much yeah and does it have because we've got a place like that in Twizel that the atmosphere is so nice that you don't need a whole lot of people there. So even if it's just you and three friends, you can have an awesome night if it's at at night time because the atmosphere is so nice. You don't need people to fill the space to make it feel good. Well, it's not even at night. They're open till 2 p.m. So it's a morning thing. Yes, exactly. There's sun shining through. You could go there by yourself. Mm. I think it's just having somewhere open. and, And it's not a new idea, I know, but... It's a gift to me, I suppose, to, nice. to be able to get a good coffee, to sit down. And and they they are start, they've just, you know, they got their liquor license. They started an, an, a drinks night the other night. And it was just funny. And the next morning I, I said, oh, how was it? And immediately she's talking about the, you know, the um, AMBO offices that were in, the teachers that were in. The, and so they're, they're also part, I, I don't know whether this is the case in New Zealand as well, but in the bush in Australia, there's, a transient population that can come through that they, they do a couple of years here as ambulance officers or police. They might teach yeah. for a couple of years. It can be really isolating. I think sometimes mm. if you operate, you, you make work friends, but sometimes you don't make community friends. Mm-hmm. But once there's a cafe and once you're kind of seeing people day to day and and without that cafe, there's you, you can really not get to know um, some of those people. So anyway, when she when she was talking about it and telling me, you know, somebody was dancing on a table and I was like, this is so valuable. Uh, it's less about the alcohol and more about this, the space that yeah. they've created. Podcast recommendation. Um, have you heard, but are you happy? Are you happy? But are you happy? Oh, but are you happy? No. Um, it's by Claire Stevens. And it's on the Mamma Mia podcast brand, whatever it is. Yeah. And um, what she does is talk to successful people about whether they're they're really happy. Mm. Um, it, it, it kind of has this concept in other forms, but she has a way of the way she did it was she started with herself and um, somebody interviewing her about whether she's really happy. And, yeah, I think she has some lovely conversations. Oh, I look forward to giving that one a go. Mm. favorite self-care a bath bath salts just a bath bath. yeah hot needs to be piping hot (laughs) how often do you get to do that (laughs) yeah not often no I do I do I do nice favorite place to holiday south coast of New South Wales in summer and the snowy mountains in winter beach or mountain 
Oh, yeah, that was a good question after that. No, I think the ocean. I need. I can't live without it. And I guess that's from that's where you grew up, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I didn't grow up at the beach, but I did. Even like when I moved to Warren, I used to say to Jack, when we'd come across a dam and you just get this slight breeze across water, like it could be quite a small dam in the middle of a paddock, I would feel myself like returning to earth. It was so, <laughs> quite strange, neat yeah. water. Paper book or Kindle? Paper book. Always. I knew that would be your answer. Yeah. Would you rather be pregnant or have a newborn? Newborn. And last one, what are you up to this weekend? I'm going to Sydney for a 40th for a great oh, I know. So oh, but I mean, it's Father's Day and uh Jack will be with <laughs> the kids on his own. Perfect. Uh, with the children that he exactly. brought to this year. Exactly. No, I cannot wait. Oh, that would be fun. Two nights away? No, a night. A night. I've been away for work a lot lately. So this was a, a duck down going to Apollo in Sydney, which is a um, yeah. Greek restaurant that I can't wait can't wait awesome and do can you fly from where you are or do you have to drive drive and then fly yeah where do you drive to Dubbo okay and what's that a couple of hours or now no it's an hour from where I live yeah longer from town but yeah we're we're pretty close nice perfect oh Grace thank you so much for your time lots of time um I really enjoyed that thank you it's been so nice getting to know you and to actually meet you Yes, it is. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the Thank interest. Thank you. Yeah, and I look forward to seeing where things go with what you do and what yeah, happens with Bifer on the Bush. Yeah, thank you And very we'll much. keep in touch. We will. Okay, thanks, Kate. Awesome. Thanks, Bye-bye. Grace. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you all so much for listening to the Dedicate podcast. If you enjoy our podcast, I'd appreciate it so much if you could please leave a five-star rating and review. It helps people to find us. If you loved this episode, make sure you haven't missed these previous beauties from other bush business women. Last week's episode was Steph Borowski on her parents separating, moving to the farm, her faith, motherhood, and affiliate marketing. I absolutely loved this episode. Anna Brand, drought, career, antenatal anxiety and her business, The Woolly Brand and Emily Riggs, triumph over tragedy. Dedicate is the Trans-Tasman, so that's Australia and New Zealand, online health and fitness community for rural and regional women, mums and those that don't have time for the gym. There's a lovely email that I received yesterday that I just want to read to you as an example of what our members get out of being a part of Dedicate. Hi Kate and Dedicate trainers. One of the best things I have done was join Dedicate. I absolutely love it. Before I joined, I was running four or five times a week and I much prefer the variety of the Dedicate workouts than running now. I couldn't do a push-up on my toes, but now I can do a couple, which I'm super proud of. I've completed a few of the challenges and have improved in the fitness tests at the end, which is awesome to be able to track my progress and see how far I have come. I have upped my weights at a few times since joining, which is yet another win. A few of my friends have Dedicate, so we have a chat called Dedicate Fan Club, which we chat on daily to talk about the workouts and how good they were. Those cheered nights you do are my fave, keep them coming. Also very excited to see Anna is back, we've really missed her. Thanks everybody for listening. Catch you next week. Bye.